you jackass. Welcome to the Jackass Critics Podcast. With your hosts, Tom and Matt. Welcome to Jackass Critics Podcast, in complete and total affiliation with jackasscritics.com. I'm Tom, and I'm joined by Matt. Good evening, Thomas. Good evening, Matt. We run and write for the website, Jackass Critics, and this is our second podcast, and we'll be going through Enter the Void by Gaspar Noy. Definitely. You can check us out at jackasscritics.com. Feel free to join our group on Facebook for the latest updates of Jackass Critics and our podcast. Follow us on Twitter at JackassTom. And now we have a new <laughs> a new friend on Twitter, JackassMatt. Yeah, I joined the revolution, and uh, I mean, it's already paying dividends. Uh, we can talk about it a little bit later, but... Uh, Definitely. Yeah, I mean, it's, I'm starting to get the feel of it a little bit, and I'm doing my baby steps. Baby steps, one at a time, so... We are on all of the social communications, except for, of course, MySpace. That's behind us now. <laughs> or MySpace. That's correct. So how's it going, Bro J. Simpson? <laughs> Very well on yourself, Thomas. Doing lovely tonight. Doing that Chicago lovely. weather treating you good? It is. It's, uh, it sucks. It sucks. Yeah. I hate it. We had three inches of snow today, so that's yeah. pretty awesome. I apologize for the F-bomb. I usually try to hold it back, but... It was, it's just that bad, yeah. It's just that bad. It's just yeah. that bad. Bro J. Simpson, I like it. Thank yeah. you. Thank yeah. you. That's pretty sharp, I thought. So, by the way, Matt, I did yeah. want to talk to you before we get into all of our lovely topics. One little topic before that I'd like to talk to you about. Sure. If you had DirecTV and, say, 60 days after something premiered at the theaters. Okay. Say it's a movie like, throw out a movie that you want to see. Avatar, obviously. Avatar. 60 yeah. days after Avatar hit the theaters. What would you pay to get that in your house for 48 hours. 48 hours, so I can throw a 48-hour-long <clears throat> avatar party where everyone has to dress up and be blue. When That's correct. Toys. You bring your blue man group paint, and All you right. just avatar it up. You put on a fake tail, and you swing from the bookcases. Whatever. So, so I'm here in the, the beautiful <clears throat> Midwest, and your average uh, Saturday night ticket's probably 10 bucks. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that exclusive... In my house, you know, it's pretty nice. You got a nice TV and a little surround sound. Maybe mm-hmm. maybe $20, I guess you could see, you know, splitting that with wow. a couple people. We're all wearing the blue, of course, you know, and everything like that. <laughs> yeah, we're Ready partying for... up in the blue, that's yeah, for sure. you know. We'll do a little webcam to Cameron's house so he can watch us uh, enjoy, <laughs> enjoy his masterpiece. <laughs> that's correct. Why do you ask, Thomas? I ask you that because, Matt, it sounds like DirecTV is going to foray into this video-on-demand um, release after premiere. So 60 days after something premieres, they will release a movie to you for $30. You get it, not exclusively, but you get it for 48 hours. You can yeah. select it, watch it. And I guess the way they're marketing this, because $30 for one movie just seems outrageous to me. I'm sure it seems outrageous to many. That's yeah, more than the price of a DVD these days. Yeah, yeah. And since you have it for a limited time, they're marketing this as... Essentially, you can throw a party. It's uh, sort of a, a an avatar party. An avatar party. Yeah. Yeah, you can throw an avatar party. You can throw a Cedar Rapids party. You can yeah. throw a Twilight party. You could throw, I don't know, a hop party. Whatever. So they're saying that you know you could essentially cut down on your 
concessions charges. You can have as many people over as you want. Right. So maybe it's good for college kids. They can all pool together their money. It sounds like they're trying to recreate the market for a film that you would watch. Yeah. Well, you know, they're trying to market it basically like a pay-per-view event, basically. It sounds like, you know, there's mm -hmm. a similar premium and trying to build an event around the viewing of the movie as opposed to just the movie itself. Yeah. It sounds like they're just trying to gouge us with the, uh, the public, though, right? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. You think about it, for 15, 20 years, they kind of had three release windows of the theatrical, and then they could really soak the blockbusters when they were selling, like, the VHSs for $120 or whatever that they were renting. And mm -hmm. then they had that third release window of the, uh, you know, the consumer-level VHS tapes for 20 bucks or whatever. Right, right. And uh, they were so eager about the DVDs and the huge number of sales they could get that uh, they kind of skipped out and dropped that middle step for a long time. Mm -hmm. And I think they're trying to insert that middle step back in here after uh, after the fact. You know, the cat's kind of out of the bag now, and they're trying to put it back yeah. in. Yeah, now, that's an interesting way of looking at it. I never thought of it that way before. Yeah, I mean, you're, but you're going to lose out in all the extras. I mean, everything you're used to paying $30 for, if you did pay $30 for a DVD or a Blu-ray, I mean, you're going to kind of miss out on the replayability and the ultimate mm -hmm. audio streams. And, I mean, if you're really into a movie that much, I think those premiums are going to be what interest you. Yeah, I don't see it. I don't see it lasting very long, but stranger things have happened. This is true. Yeah, I mean, I guess there are a lot of... A lot of people that are willing to separate their money, fool in their money. Right. So, Matt, do you know what time it is? What time is it, Thomas? It's time to squeeze some bullets out of the chamber. <laughs> All right. My favorite part of the show. This is our segment called Bullets in the Chamber. We'll hit on a few quick topics. And I will go with the first one, Matt. I do have a bullet in the chamber. Yeah. And ironically enough, it's for a little movie called Gun. Oh. I think I told you I watched this movie a while back, and it still hasn't left my medulla oblongata. <laughs> Your stream of consciousness oh, is God. still tainted and that's in a by bad gun. Way. There's a lot of things I could probably work into this film, but I just want to focus on the end of the film. I don't think I need to attach spoiler alert to say this, because Gun isn't one of those movies that you worry about spoiling. No, no. But towards the end of the film, there's a large sting operation set up by the Detroit cops, and say what you want about Detroit PD, but I think they're smart enough to set up a better sting operation than what goes on. There's a large warehouse where a weapons transfer is going on with some very large hand cannons. <laughs> so, yeah. 50 Cent is given a very large weapon by John Larroquette, of all people. <laughs> you serious, Larroquette? Yeah, John Larroquette yeah. is handing him a very large weapon. Man. And then the briefcase transfers from Fiddy to Larroquette, who then takes him to night court. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> 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 so I might still really know John Larroquette, by the way. I'm <laughs> trying to keep up with you. Yeah, I know. Don't don't lose it. Yeah. So uh, the transfer happens. The cops say, go. 50 Cent is still holding this huge weapon yeah. in his hands. Yeah. Now, they already got people in the warehouse watching him. No snipers, apparently, though, because one of those snipers should be able to take 50 down before he starts railing on every cop car that enters the warehouse. I mean, literally dozens, maybe a hundred cops are coming into this place in cars, on foot, and he's just blowing them down with these bean pods the size of cantaloupes, <laughs> right? I mean, it's the dumbest thing I've ever seen, and how they expect you to... Uh, to see that as being realistic, I can't imagine that goes down in real life. you got to have a sniper up there to take them down. Yeah, if they're going the parody route, they might as well just have him have like a American Revolution-era cannon that he's literally just wheeling as cars are coming in. 
Yeah, or just give him a tank. There? Yeah, or just tank. give him a tank. Yeah. Get it over. How about you, Matt? Got a bullet? Oh man, I love Curtis Jackson. That's hard to really follow up John Larroquette, honestly. But uh, <sighs> it is. Go for it. I've been traveling down the Scanners Tunnel lately, so uh, there's a trilogy of films called Scanners, which you know some of our more astute readers and listeners may be familiar with. I've um, heard. Yeah, so the original was a Cronenberg film, and he's kind of distanced himself from the sequels. But uh, what was really cool about the original, which I just got my hands on recently, it was a real good time capsule of the 80s. And, um, you know, you think of a typical 80s movie, you know, I say 80s movie to you, you're probably going to think uh, John Hughes or, you know, some Breakfast Club action or something like that, or maybe even a, a Rambo or something like that, you know? Mm-hmm. But... Uh, we get some really good scenes of just like interiors and exteriors that are kind of familiar to me, and maybe it's just my uh, Midwest upbringing and the locations to me. But uh, when I was watching this, it really took me back to uh, going into Kmart and, and seeing all the preponderance of red colors and uh, on the walls and uh, and the carpet <laughs> and stuff like that. Yeah. And there really is a distinct uh, feel and vibe to the '80s from compared to like the '70s mm-hmm. movies and the '90s movies. I mean. For the most part, we think of 90s movies as very similar to kind of what we see today. I mean, for the most part. I mean, Terminator 2 or something like that. I mean, that could be filmed today, I would think, more or less. Oh, for sure. For sure. Um, Cameron films stand up. So, I mean, it was just a real interesting thing. I don't know if any movies uh, really scream 80s to you. Uh, for sure. You know, you know, when you said you saw Scanners 2, that really surprised me because I didn't even know there was a Scanners 2. I thought everyone's head exploded by Scanners 1 and there wasn't a head ex- to explode. Well, I heard after that. The, the one, uh, the main explosion was actually a bullet from 50 Cent's uh, Bean Pot Thrower. So I <laughs> flew all the way you know, back I, to the 80s into Canada and blew up that guy's head. So that's how fast You know, when you told me you watched Scanners, I did look at the trailer and they showed the guy's head exploding. And I read that Cronenberg actually set up some sort of latex head with rabbit livers and dog food and I guess they fired off a 12 gauge at this thing to make it explode and let me tell you the uh, effect is pretty strong yeah yeah I mean they were not subtle about that but made me want to ralph my tacos they do a lot better job in the first one than in the rest it's kind of hard you know it's mental telepathy type fighting so that's kind of hard to film and make it not cheesy Mm -hmm. like are you going to stare into the camera and shake your head it's a really Give them the fact that you're you're stressing out and sending mental messages to somebody. So they were kind of subtle about it, good in a, a typical '80s Canadian vibe. And the sequels were just <laughs> horrible. Beads of sweat and people doing vicious head motions to really send it home. But yeah. uh, I would recommend if you're looking for a little uh, snippet of the '80s and want to relive those fun times, check out the original Scanners. And if you want to relive uh, bad '90s Canada. Uh, experiences, maybe scanners two and three. <laughs> All right, I've got another bullet here, man. Yeah, yeah. So three weeks ago, I was reading through my little Facebook wall, and it was announced by Criterion Collection that they would be releasing Chud, C H U D. I don't know if you remember this movie from the eighties. The cover. I don't remember. Yeah, hmm? the cover of this, the uh, video release. Right, right. I, I don't remember a whole lot myself. I just remember there were these beans dwelling underneath the sewers or something to that effect. Yep. It just shocked me that this was a movie that was being released by Criterion Collection, though, because it seemed like such a cheesy 80s horror-type flick. I mean, you might as well release Ghoulies or something, yeah, yeah. some sort of garbage like that. And they even had Kent Jones giving a video description for like a minute or two on the website about why this was such an interesting film, and he's tying it back to... 
film noir of the, the <laughs> 40s, how something's lurking underneath the surface, and it sort of bubbles that up in this film. And I thought, wow, yeah. this is... I even, I even read a little bit further, and they started talking about uh, the cinematographer, Peter Steen, and they gave a peripheral credit to him, you know, in, in the brackets. They said he was also the cinematographer on Ernest Goes to Jail. <laughs> wow, that's an interesting credit to give. I've heard that is the Citizen Kane of the uh, Ernest series, so I can yeah. understand <laughs> the props. And then all of a sudden it dawned on me. I'm reading this post on April 1st. Oh, those April Fools from Criterion, well played. Those manies, yeah. I mean, uh, if you issue a press release that try to t- tries to tell me that... Blo- that uh, Chud is like the blob of, of the 80s or something like that. Like, you know, this yeah. is so bad it's good. You know, there's some overriding themes here that really have some merit. Uh, and it's from coming from Criterion. I'm going to buy that. I, yeah, I'm going to say, say there's something I overlooked originally. I didn't see this movie when I was whatever age I was when it came out. I think like seven or eight. Right. I didn't see it. Maybe there's something I missed about it. Maybe it was, you know, John Carpenter had some sort of influence, and that brings it to a, a higher level. horror yeah. level, right? Nope, nope. Just egg in the face for uh, Jackass Tom and Jackass Man right there. That's right, yeah. that's right. Man. My pre-order is all for naught. Yeah. One more bullet for Matt. Oh, I do have another bullet. This this is a, what a way to end our inaugural Bullets in the Chamber. Right. So, um, you know, I've been on the Giallo hunt to search, you know, scraping the bottom of the barrel here. So we've gotten into the <laughs> late uh, Giallo Italian movies with kind of a masked killer. It's kind of revealed at the end as your typical Giallo. So this one was, this little uh, nugget's called Sister of Ursula. And uh, mm-hmm. you could tell they had kind of used all of their traditional uh, weapons uh, to dispatch of people, you know, gloved hands, choking people, and uh, you know, wires to choke people and knives to stab people. So they decided to use a um, a personal massager, I guess you could say. Um, I understand some women use these things to, if they have a cramp in their back, um, they have a little personal massager, or if they have pains elsewhere that they okay. wish to do. Um, so elsewhere, I see. Yes, the uh, the villain. Uh, decides to dispatch people using this device. And they uh, always are sure to show the uh, victim's eyes as the um, weapon is shown to them to have them pop open and say, no, not that, anything but that. Mm-hmm. So it's obviously I feel like you're killed. dancing around the topic, Matt. I feel like you're, you're doing a little tiptoeing here. It's a wooden dildo, Tom. It's a big oh, wooden oh. dildo. Mm. Yeah, I see. So, Another reason regions massage. That wasn't really a spoiler because they 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 unabashedly show it over and over again. But uh, I see. You know what happens if my mom listens to this? And, you know the last one didn't go over well. So right, yeah, right. We well, I must say that your mom is our number one fan, and I definitely appreciate her backing <laughs> us in full support. Love you, mom. Yeah. Yeah. So mom shouldn't watch Sister Ursula. But if you're in, if you're the sort of person that's into movies where people get killed with wooden dildos, then what more do I have to say? Put that on my list for uh, those friends of mine. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Matt. And that was Bullets in the Chamber. My new favorite segment of the show, Tom. Oh, thank you, Matt. Yeah. You know what my favorite segment of the show What's is? What's that? The main event. Oh, ding, ding, ding. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah. Our main event this week is the film Enter the Void. You made a good pick, Tom. Uh, Love it or hate it, there's there's a lot to talk about. So there's a lot to talk yeah. about here. 
So we'll start with a little introduction, Enter the Void. Tell me about this Enter the Void, f- Tom. Uh, I'll try to tell you about Enter the Void, Matt. You watched it, didn't you? Oh, yes. Yes, I did. Oh, of course. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So Enter the Void is a film by Gaspar Noé, shot in 100% point of view. And it's from the point of view of our main character, Oscar, who, I don't know, for better or for lack of better description, he's a young slacker, just-turned-drug dealer, white kid living in Tokyo with his sister Linda. And about 27 minutes into the film, Oscar is shot and killed by Tokyo cops Oof. in a drug deal gone wrong. Not pleasant. No, no. So losing the main character, who's also your point of view, that might sound like a problem for most filmmakers, but Gaspar Noe, it opens up a whole new world. He got lemons, he made lemonade. Oh, he squeezed those lemons <laughs> hard. <laughs> So the point of view remains, but now the story is essentially seen from the character's traveling spirit. So first he takes journeys through his memories, and then his spirit watches over Linda and some of his friends before it eventually finds a new place to settle. And I'd like to also mention here that we will be talking about details about the end of the movie. I think it's impossible for us to dance around those topics and still give this movie a... uh, a nice little duo up here, yeah, yeah. so I do want to do want to mention ahead of time. Spoiler alert for the whole episode. So here we are, Enter the Void, Gaspar Noé. One thing I'd like to start off with here. Yeah, Tom. There's a little something, a little quote that Gaspar Noé included in his Cannes 2009 press book. It's a quote from Steven Spielberg, and it's not about the film per se, but I think it's something that Noé thought that he wanted to. Yeah. Reference for the film. Making a film is difficult, but making a great film is almost an impossible task. Setting the bar pretty high there. Not being very shy about uh, what he thinks Not about it. Not being very shy yeah. at all. So, Enter the Void. I mean, there's a lot of places we can start. I just went through the introduction. I think we'll start with the actual intro of the film, though, oh. which is a visual onslaught. What a feast. It hits you, it hits you like a pair of drumsticks over your head. Yeah. It's you, it's you. Yeah, whatever. And, uh, yeah, Matt, you want to take that away? Well, I mean, it's, I it's hard were, to do it justice. Blown away by um, it. And really, I don't want to get people too psyched up about it to watch it independently. I, I know after I watched it, I really wanted to send, uh, like, the YouTube clip to everybody I knew because it was yeah. so uh, stunning. So it's it's a, a uh, strong electronic beat going on in the background and then an amazing selection of fonts coupled with like a, a light show, I guess you could say. I mean, it's predominantly mm-hmm. black, but the fonts are just illustrated in such a way that um, it truly gets your heart beating. I had like a physical reaction to the opening credit sequence, uh, which I can honestly say has never happened to me before. It's not an easy sequence to fall asleep to. You don't <laughs> want to put it on the background if you want to go nighty-night. It reminds me of like watching a knockout highlight compilation to, like, the Chemical Brothers or something like that, turned up as loud as possible. It's sort of also like watching a slideshow of all the pictures that your parents took of neon sides at Las Vegas. <laughs> you know, if you watch that slideshow at full speed, like, yeah. every quarter of a second, there's a new picture. Condensed down with some block rock and beats banging really as loud <laughs> yeah, as possible. Yeah, block rock and beats. Yeah. It, it honestly is the most memorable opening title sequence I can remember. I can remember three title sequences for movies, you know, mm-hmm. for the most part. I, I understand that there's a craft to it and everything, and I don't want to dismiss the people that, that uh, design them, but I remember uh, 
this movie, obviously, Enter the Void. Uh, Panic Room, I thought, was really creative and pretty amazing. And Seven, not to just harp back to our friend Fincher, but... Uh, Man, we're shills for Fincher. I know, but he, he <laughs> knows how to hire the right people or whatever. I, I assume, you know, he gives them the vision to, and then tells them to go away and make it happen. So, uh, mm-hmm. I was curious if you had any ones that, you know, just really stick out or something that was kind of interesting and amazing. Well, yeah, I mean, title sequences don't really affect me in any way, I guess you could say. Yeah. I know opening sequences, uh, this this is obviously one that uh, that has no characters in it. It's just the pure credits. Yeah. And what's interesting about it, too, is that it actually goes through all the credits you'd normally see at the end of a movie, the ones you usually walk away from when you're in a movie theater. Right. But when you're watching this, it's just such a, a visual feast for the eyes. It's a visual overload, and it's an audio overload, too, because... I think the the piece that was playing was by Daft Punk, so you weren't very far off when you say Chemical Brothers. Okay, cool. But my taste in electronica is a little weak, so I'm sorry to offend everybody. <laughs> like, oh, what an idiot! He only knows the Chemical Brothers, and that is pretty much the case. So, yeah. But yeah, it was. Uh, it just it nails you. It and it sort of sets the mood for the rest of the movie too, which isn't very far off of that pace. Yeah, you know. <laughs> He prov- he provides the highs and the lows, I guess, and we haven't gotten into some of the visuals there, but uh, later right. on in the film, but there are longer extended sequences where, yeah, you got the color palette going on and everything, but it's much more relaxed and and laid back. So, you know, it right. gives you the full dynamic range, I guess you could say, and this this sets the bar for what the max is going to be, and you know, right. it's pretty cool. Right. And uh, yeah, so we'll we'll take it from that that title sequence to. Uh, starting with Oscar's point of view, yeah. the first thing you see in the movie, which is enter flashing from Oscar's point of view, right? He's looking outside of his Tokyo apartment, and you're just sitting there watching the movie, watching what he's watching as he's talking to his sister Linda. You see his blinks, you hear everything he hears, and it's an interesting, uh, it, well, as No Way puts it, in internal experience that he wants to immerse you into. Yep, yep. You definitely feel like you're in in his body and in his soul for a little bit there. It's uh it's quite a quite a thing to hit you with. And I know uh a couple movies that influenced him for this yeah. for sure. Yeah. Lady in the Lake, I don't know if you ever saw it in 1947. I've added it to my to watch list, but I haven't watched experienced it yet, you know, cuz it sounds pretty interesting. Though I know it's not really a going to be easy to see the connection between well, yeah, there's there's a literal connection because the whole movie shot from the Philip Marlowe point of view. Right. I don't think it, it was more of a gimmick in Lady and the Lake. I didn't think Lady and the Lake was a great movie by any respects. There's three or four Marlowe films I'd put above it, and there's probably three or four other Marlowe films. Yeah, but, <laughs> but it, it was interesting to see them, Robert Montgomery in that in that case, use that as an experimental tool. It's definitely a good movie to see just to see how he he executed that. I think Gaspar Noe watched that movie on mushrooms. No oh, joke. Okay, yeah. And uh, he thought that that was going to be the uh, one of the coolest ways to shoot a movie. Also, Diving Bell and the Butterfly, which is a movie that came out two, three years ago, maybe okay. four years ago. I can't remember exactly. But I remember watching the beginning of that movie. It wasn't shot in total point of view, but okay. I think the first ten or fifteen minutes was shot in point of view of a guy who'd been paralyzed pretty much every extremity. I think he could open and blink one eye. Oh, boy, yeah. Yeah, so you saw the blinks. You saw him looking at, I think it was a nurse or someone who was helping resuscitate him or something like that. So it was uh, 
Uh, I think he pulled a lot from that movie. And then a movie I hadn't seen, but I know he, he references a lot in interviews is uh, Strange Days. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, there are some cool uh, <clears throat> VR first-person scenes in that for certain. Right. And the use of color is definitely good. I know one uh, first-person movie that probably didn't play much of an influence, and that was uh, Doom. Starring the Rock, you know that uh, <laughs> that sweet vehicle of uh, awesomeness, and there was some pretty uh, bitchin' first-person stuff in there that probably didn't have an effect whatsoever on <laughs> Gaspar Noé's uh, well ideas here. Yeah. Thankfully, and we can be thankful for yep, that. Yep, thankful yeah. for all of us. Yeah, that's a Warner Herzog though, so he's probably willing to box uh, or whatever that bad German director's name is. Not Warner Herzog, the other one that makes all the other the, one. Yeah. Yeah, I think I know where you're going with yeah. that. Bull? Uwe Bull? Uwe Bull, thank you. And sorry, Bull. sorry Warner Herzog. Yeah. I didn't mean to. A man you wanted to box at one point. <laughs> That's, we'll have to do a special we'll, uh, Jackass podcast. We'll go into that day. another day. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I think uh, Gaspar Noe, within maybe 10 or 15 minutes of the film, actually takes that point of view to another level, right? So first we got the internal experience of watching what he sees, right. hearing what he hears. Yeah. So he's and still playing in the play, same playground as everybody else that's kind of done it. You know, he hasn't branched out yet to something right. more existential or what have you. Right, right. So then he takes it to another level where as soon as his sister leaves, he starts thinking different thoughts. Does she think I'm a junkie? You know, is she uh, uh, is she going to see that Mario guy? So we start hearing his internal thoughts, and that becomes part of our film experience. Yeah. And then he lights up the pipe, <laughs> smokes some uh, DMT, which is a psychedelic drug, and for the next five minutes, we were taken on his little acid trip ride yeah, yeah. through red sea and enemy land and flashing lights and whatever. It's, you know, truly an amazing piece of five minutes of just visual artwork. It's very cool, and I, I did understand that the uh, the company that produced that is actually listed as one of the producers of the film just because it had such an impact on, you know, the final result that uh, mm-hmm. not only did they produce those visuals that you're kind of seeing, you know, plugged into the cerebellum or what have you, but, uh, I mean, it really is an important part of the movie, so. Right, right. So he he's really trying to immerse you into this total idea of, of what Oscar is, what Oscar sees, and, you know, a, a short slice of time, right? Everything from what he hallucinates to what he actually hears and what he sees. It's it, it's a pretty interesting idea to take you into. It is, and I, I'm certain that's where the first time where you're going to lose some of your viewership, be it casual viewers or even people that are really mm-hmm. into it. I mean, it's just abstract and, and not direct. And up until that point, yeah, we've introduced some unusual elements to the film, but we've got you know some interaction, some dialogue between likable people and doing interesting things that are somewhat interesting. So I can understand that's probably the first time where we're starting to deviate and, you know, you're Mm -hmm. testing your bounds of how much you're willing to uh, relax your expectations and see what, uh, where the movie's going. Yes. And then he takes it a step further. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So about the 27 minute mark, uh, he goes to deliver some drugs to his buddy, Victor, who essentially rats him out to the Tokyo police. This is after he comes out of his uh, DMT coma. Right answers the phone, goes to see Victor with his buddy Alex, delivers the drugs, but then he hears the cops railing in. Victor says, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. He's set up by his good old pal Victor. 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 He runs into the bathroom. Boom. Cops shoot him through the stomach because he claims he has a gun. And then we take a journey into the second chapter of the film, which is 
essentially is a spirit wandering around and, and diving into the lives of his friends yeah. and dipping into some old memories he has. Yeah, during the traditional, well, somewhat traditional beginning, we've still got that first-person stuff, but uh, his buddy Alex, you know, they have a little discussion on the Tibetan Book of the Dead, which kind of sets the path for right, right. how things are Thank going. Right, that up. And, yeah. I mean, it's a really important part of the movie, and uh, it really gets the mind thinking about what's about to happen, because they're, they're obviously giving you some uh, foreshadowing there when they get to that discussion. Though what happened oh, yeah. with the, you know, the spoiler of the shooting was certainly unexpected. That's not what I was expecting to happen whatsoever. Even though we did mm-hmm. have that foreshadowing. Oh yeah, yeah. There's a lot that was foreshadowed. Obviously, the Tibetan Book of the Dead was a uh, a big part of this. I mean, he he sort of foreshadows uh, not only DMT being this uh, this chemical that goes off in your brain before you die, right. but he also foreshadows. Um, your spirit wandering around for a while before it's reincarnated yeah. in another in another being. Yep, yep. You know, all this just sort of uh, everything they talk about before you end up seeing throughout the course of the film. Yeah, so it does. I mean, if you're the type of person that uh, doesn't want to proactively think while you're watching, it probably pays pays off to kind of pay attention while they're discussing the Book of the Dead because that's going to be kind of your handy guide to what's about to happen in the next following two hours, basically. Right, yeah. right, right. So I think one of the the big themes of the film, or one of the the plot points that they keep going back to, is his connection with his sister Linda, and how he keeps going back to her. He feels very protective of her. I think that's the first place the spirit goes to is to check up on her, right. and then goes through a number of of memories. And this is one of the things that I thought visually was was really interesting was when they go through those memories, they appear, at least from, from my perspective, I think I give Noe a lot of credit for this, a lot of the memories appear, like you sort of think of memories appearing. Some of the memories that are further off in the distance, you think of them as like split seconds. Right, right. right. You, can't, you can't remember 10 seconds of, of what happened with, it, with a lot of depth. But you might remember, say, a shot of being at the beach for a split second yeah. with your sister and seeing your mother in the background there. And I thought that was kind of interesting. Some of them are longer and more drawn out because they affect you more. Yeah, but often you can just remember the emotion or, you know, the scent of the sea or what have you. Well, you know, mm-hmm. no way is using the one tool that he has here, you know, the, the camera to kind of capture just some of the uh, those snippets as, as distinctly as possible, succinctly as possible, basically, you know. Right, you know? right. And so after they go through memory lane, um, he goes through, travels, watches his friends, goes through a, a journey through Tokyo, too. And while we're staying on the visuals, I did kind of want to talk about that. He, uh, In one of his memories, he goes back to his friend's apartment where he has a model set up of Tokyo. <laughs> yeah. It turned out the lights, and it's this big, huge neon show that takes up the whole living room of the apartment, which is just stunning. And then you yeah, see... Yeah. You know, the only thing that you see sort of blocking that is the back of uh, of Oscar's head. Right. Which is kind of a interesting tool. I mean, yeah, the 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 work in Tokyo is is unbelievable, and I mean, it's kind of cliche to say that the city is a character in the movie, but I mean, it certainly <laughs> could not have happened anywhere else. Just with the the colors and the pulse that it provides, it, it oh, absolutely. You know, it reminds me of kind of the Blade Runner sets and just the despair and the heavy weight that you felt in, in that movie. Uh, it's similar in terms of the artificial life, I guess, that the, the colors mm-hmm. and the intensity kind of bring to to Enter the Void. It's pretty cool. 
Oh yeah, I think just just the visual feast that your eyes take on the overload that it takes. I mean, you ever walk down a street in Tokyo or a lot of the the bigger cities in Japan? Yeah. I think you get this experience where, you know, if you walk into the right place, it's just a visual onslaught, just nailing you with flickering lights and moving lights and sounds coming from everywhere, and and you don't really get that in such a confined space as you get in Tokyo. But, I mean, obviously I don't think he wanted to film it anywhere but Tokyo. And talk about an ambitious plan Mm -hmm. for, I imagine, you know, he's not a mainstream American director, so that's got to make your budget go crazy trying to to film in Tokyo. And I'm sure that that was a major fight to make that happen. But, wow, it really paid off. I mean, I appreciate the fact that he did do it. Right. Yeah, while we're on the the subject of the visuals. I may repeat myself there. So I, I looked at the credits yeah. on IMDb and they listed under art direction, 40 people Wow, yeah. for this movie. So probably I have no concept of what 40 people is for art direction. It sounds like a lot. So I looked up a couple movies. I looked up Inception, okay. which I thought is a movie recent that probably had a lot of art direction Absolutely. going on because yeah. there are a number of different cities bending things left and right. Three. Wow. Three people had credits for that. I looked up some of the recent Star Wars movies. Attack of the Clones, six. Yeah. That's... And then the next movie I looked up, Avatar, 15. <laughs> I thought maybe Avatar would rival it. Yeah, with its billion-dollar budget or what have you. So. Uh... Yeah, and, and just all the computer generation going on, uh, CGI effects, etc. I thought there's going to be a lot of art generation. I mean, they created a whole world in Avatar. Yeah. So having around 40 people for art direction. Another thing is... Pierre Buffon. Does that name ring a bell for you at all? No, sir. He did the visual effects on Fight Club, Batman Begins, Matrix Reloaded, and The Cell. That right there is a resume. That right there is a resume. (laughs) He did a lot of the flying cameras for that, and he had a visual effects credit on this film. Okay. Gaspar Noe definitely credits him with a lot of the flying through the buildings. Uh, When you watch this film at home, you'll see that a lot of the effects, he starts flying through different buildings, and dipping in and seeing what his sister's doing and seeing what emotion she's going through and then he flies out from there yeah. and he goes and tries to find Alex who's on the streets trying to stay away from the cops and it it, it cuts through a lot of the ways you would see in, in Fight Club. It's got a real bird-like quality and, and it's almost mm-hmm. a bit dreamier than that like a bird floating on a cloud type of thing which is definitely yeah, it's fitting for what, you know, the spirit idea and and really, one of the gutsier things is, I mean, some of these flights from A to B are taking two or three minutes. And, uh, I mean, A, that ramps up your budget, just speaking practically and boringly. Um, but, but B, it really uh, forces the viewer to to take in and appreciate what we're seeing here. I mean, you can't just say, all right, well, what's going on with Alex right now? You know, let's just slam cut over there. No, no, you're going to travel because... You know, Oscar's traveling, and Oscar's you know, wondering <laughs> what's going on with Alex, too. So you're going to wonder what's going on with Alex. So, I mean, it's kind of a gutsy call. And obviously, I think we could talk about this more later, but I think he made the movie he definitely wanted to make here. And, and oh, his yeah, vision no is realized, you know, to a T. So. Right, right. Yeah, definitely. So as he's going through this uh, journey back through his memory box, too, you're taking that journey from the back of... Oscar's head. Yeah. That's all you see the whole time, either when he's a little boy, when he's uh, more of a grown man, you see the back of his head the entire time, which is kind of an interesting thing, too. It's almost like his spirit is following 
on Oscar's back. Yeah. Uh, looking through, not from his eyes, but maybe as his soul departed from his body, looking out over Alex. I, I don't know how else to describe it. It was it was kind of a an interesting tool that Noe used, and I'm not exactly sure what the intention was for it, but I, I, I did feel it was kind of a, a neat effect just to see. Maybe it was an out-of-body experience he was going for. Yeah, yeah, and I guess there always is the question of how reliable, you know, is is what's happening here. You know, maybe if – I know the thought going out of my head at times was like, you know, was, is he reimagining some of these and making the memory sweeter or, or more mm-hmm. dramatic and more violent, you know, with the unfortunate demise of the parents as well. Um, so there's always the question of – I think it adds a little bit of – can I really trust this? And is this really what happened or is this being reinterpreted now that, you know, he's reimagining going through all these scenes and stuff like that, you know, is this really what happened? And I think that uh, distance from the character themselves kind of added a little bit to that, at least from my, my take. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a strong thought there. I may get back to that in a little cool. bit too. <laughs> so totally stole yeah, your those... thunder. <laughs> nope. We're just uh, transitioning into that a little bit later. All right. But, it, yeah, it's interesting. Another comment that I read was uh, uh, from an interview that he did, and uh, he was talking about how that intro at the beginning with the DMT, and he said that a lot of DMT smokers actually came up to him and said that it's uh, it's pretty close to what they, they realized. Okay. So I, I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, well, maybe. I mean, it sounds like Noe may have possibly experienced once or twice himself or asked somebody beforehand, I guess, maybe. Yeah, he he did mention once taking liquid DMT in some Amazonian jungle. I may or may not have been there with him when he was doing that. So <laughs> I mean, somebody's got to give him the the stuff, as I like to call it. So that's right. You know? Give him the first taste for free, right? That's right. <laughs> he calls me Sugar. That's that's my my code name for when I'm dealing. Yeah, yep. definitely. <laughs> So yeah, there were there were a couple other elements too. There's some just even small things that he did during some of those flashback scenes. Uh, there was one moment, and maybe it was a couple moments, where uh, as he's looking through his apartment, you see something off to the side that just sort of shakes a little mm-hmm. bit, and it reminded me of like when I'm sick or maybe hungover, as it were. Yeah, sure. <laughs> you know, and you're sort of looking around your apartment, and maybe something off to the side just isn't focusing just right. I thought that was like an interesting tool that might put you in his perspective. Yeah. Well, I mean, when you want to get, grab somebody's attention, the traditional way would be a, a laser focus on something and, and let's blur everything else out. But you know, what if you right. blur the one thing of interest and, uh, instead presented in that manner. And I get, like you said, when you're influenced or, or ill or not feeling well, that's right. probably a, a more legitimate way to send that message, you know? Oh, yeah, you know, when you're just not 100%. And it's tough to focus, and it's tough to really, you know, if you had the super laser focus and everything else, you know, bright lights going on behind it, and that's probably not very realistic. Right, right. And there was uh, another moment, too, when they were coming out of the, uh, when he and his sister were coming out of a club, and she said, you know, it's the anniversary of mom and dad's death. There's a strange jump cut. I don't know if you noticed it, but there was a jump cut between, no, no. they were standing essentially... On the they street. were standing on the sidewalk, yeah. and then as she said that, in the middle saying that, they were all of a sudden standing in front of the club, and then they cut back to the sidewalk. Oh yes, it's ringing a bell. Yeah, it, it was almost like a 
a memory misremembered or being pieced together but not having the full information to do it justice. Yeah. If that makes any sense. So I'm curious why he just seemingly did that the one time. If I mean, if there was, you know, the idea of a synapse was kind of firing wrong if, or, uh, <laughs> you know, something else was going on in here in the in the end of the spirit travel. Yeah. But yes, yeah, now that you mentioned that, I do recall that as being somewhat jarring. Oh, yeah, Maybe give it more sure. weight just in terms of, you know, that statement. And... Right. And while well, the visuals were amazing, I don't want to focus on that for the entire podcast, the sound was just as enthralling, and I think you probably have uh, some good analysis on that. I know you have a, a better setup for sound than I do. <laughs> well, I was able to listen to it, you know, through the surround sound and have a nice little setup there, and I turned it up pretty loud because I think this uh, really rewarded you since, I mean... As corny as it sounds, I really think they painted, you know, a, a picture with the sound quite a bit. And mm-hmm. we talked earlier about the opening and just the the thundering beats that kind of really get you charged up. But as the film goes on, there's a seamless blend of of, of thought going on in Oscar's head and, and the dialogue that's going on between him and the characters, and then music going on, and obviously mm-hmm. the Tokyo landscape provides a, a dense packed a, a dense population of people that are encroaching in on the conversations and the music mm-hmm. is going on as they're walking through the the town and everything i mean it's just really amazing how well they did and before this i know i was even telling random people at, at work and and my friends that uh i never really understood what the point of uh, was for like a the oscar for sound editing and sound mixing because i'd never really viewed that as an art and i know the sound mixers of america are gonna boycott the jackass podcast now but i'm (laughs) I'm on board with them now because that was it's really they achieved something here that uh made me appreciate it truly as an art because it was pretty cool yeah i i agree with you completely there and it's sort of sad when you see mainstream movies get awarded for doing much less than what was uh, going on with Enter the Void because, you know, for close to three hours, yeah. it's just it, almost seamless what they do. It's just a, an onslaught, visual and audio, and that audio is so well tied into the movie. And one thing I had written down was that it feels like it's a completely diegetic sound. Like, it's it's exactly what is going on in the film world and it's not like there's a soundtrack outside of the film world obviously there's more music that gets pumped in when his soul separates from his body but my feeling was is that 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 was probably the music that was part of the soul or maybe part of some trip that he was going on some dmt trip whatever was happening at that time i felt that 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 music was uh, just some sort of other way to communicate his his feelings at that time it it makes me realize how dumbed down and I guess vanilla a traditional sound presentation for a, a blockbuster is. And I mean, mm-hmm. you think about your Independence Day, and there, yeah, there's thundering explosions <laughs> and everything. But it truly is dumbed down, and and everything is stripped away aside from that thunder thunderous explosion. And, and I'm not expecting you know your Mr. and Mrs. Smith movies to have you know a, a sound mix of this level or have you know a, a truly challenging piece of sound work that, you know, it's just not appropriate, I guess, for it. And I understand that, but um, mm-hmm. super ambitious to what they attempted to do here. And it really, it's like a a painting 
that is just uh, done right before your ears. It's pretty cool. I'm, mm-hmm. Again, something yeah. I never really expected I would I would appreciate, but I, I did. Yeah, the craft. A, a dark and a dark and brooding painting, I might add yeah. too, because a lot of the mu- music it isn't exactly an upper. <laughs> no, no, no doubt. And you know, I guess after you get shot, you're kind of bummed out at times, and yeah, sort of sad. Yeah, and they had some. <laughs> Sad things in their childhood and stuff, and I know we've talked a little bit about you know the death of their parents and Oscar's career choice and poor Linda's career choice. Career she kind choice. of uh, yeah found herself in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did she ever? Yeah. Yeah, career choices. Do you think that's uh, any way associated to any Freudian issues that they were dealing with? Do you think there was a little uh, Freudian action here, Tom? I'm pretty sure he hit us over the head with the uh, Freudian sledgehammer, if you will. Sledgehammer, indeed. Sledgehammer. I guess it starts early on. Well, not early on in the film, but maybe towards the middle of the film as Oscar's going through his his flashbacks. We see a very intense flashback of when he and Linda lost their parents. And, uh, yeah, I guess if there's any spoiler alert, it's this one. Uh, They're driving in a car. Everything seems to be good, heading back from the beach. They're in the back seat. Boom! They hit a semi head first as it comes around the corner in a tunnel. And their parents' faces are pretty much bloodied. His sister is screaming, you know. And it's pretty intense to watch, especially if you're a parent. It's a little bit tough to watch. And I think a lot of that sort of affects them later on in life. Or at least that's what... Uh, no way would like you to think. It had an effect on me just as the moviegoer. And, you know, it's... Uh, I, we talked about probably, I think, before, but, you know, some of the more important events in their life are kind of revisited over and over again. So we kind of see mm-hmm. this, you know, giving it the appropriate amount of weight, you know, in, in Oscar's life and Oscar's spirit story, I guess, if you want to say. So even though I was, I guess, somewhat desensitized to it after seeing it a few times, uh, mm-hmm. some of the later... Uh, uh, presentations of it really made me jump out of my seat more than a traditional even horror movie just in terms of the initial presentation of it is kind of long we see the family out on the the path but even then you get like a sense of of doom that something bad's about to happen and we've kind of got a sense that (laughs) something's going on but as we revisit it over and over again it's kind of more and more condensed down to the point where i think the last time it's presented it's Kids in the kids in the car, bam! You know, smash, and it really uh, made me jump out of my seat the last time, even though I was that was the fourth or fifth time I'd seen it. Yeah, that's an interesting effect because you're just waiting for it to happen because you know it's going to happen right. next. I think the first time it catches you off guard, but the next time you're waiting for it and sort of dreading the fact that it's going to happen any moment now. It's still going to happen again. Yeah, yep. and uh, yeah, we'll remain on Freud for a little bit. Yeah, boobies. <laughs> <laughs> this is uh, not a family-friendly movie, and, and li- unless you're European, probably, and then it's probably pretty cool. But and then it's probably pretty cool, yeah. So yeah. there was within his memories alone, there was uh, a lot of memories of his mother in the bathtub, a lot of memories of his uh, mother with her top off. Yep, yep. Um, yeah, just being a baby and wanting to get back to the breast and suck some milk and hear his mother's heartbeat, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, that seems to be a big part of Oscar's flashbacks, ironically enough. Yeah. And and yeah. even even there's go ahead. No, no, go ahead, Tom. I was gonna say there's even a a flashback to a memory he has where 
uh, it seems like he's trying to replace his mother by having sex with his friend's mother. Yeah, the infamous Victor, who, you know, like as it turns out, probably was a little bit cheesed about this and led, you know, the events to occur as they did in our initial part of the movie there. A jerky Victor. Yeah. What's his problem anyway? You know, a little little <laughs> mommy love, and next thing you know, he's ratting you out to the popo. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. of course there's the scene where uh, he walks in on his parents doing it. Boy, they were not very shy with that one either. I mean... Yeah, they weren't. They weren't. That was uh, some interesting imagery, I might add. I know if you, like, uh, do your own stunts, you get, like, a stunt pay. I mean, if you film that scene, <laughs> do you get, like, a, a bonus of some sort? Does Do you get, like, an extra piece of chicken at lunch off the craft services table? Uh, it sounded like his mother got a bonus there. Oh, she, yeah, she was not very Ooh. shy. About definitely her, not sure uh, about that. No. Yeah, so there's definitely some explicit sex scenes going on there. Mommy, daddy loving. Yeah, and there's lots of separation going on. Uh, separation from his parents, obviously. Separation from his sister and the promise he breaks with her, saying that they'll always stay together. Yeah. They do a little bit of a blood oath there. Yep, yep. Cutting the thumbs, putting them together. Yuck. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, never did the, you ever did that with anybody, Tom? I take it? And no, I've never actually cut my thumb on purpose no. to, you know, juice it up with someone else's bloody thumb. <laughs> yeah. That just, it never really struck me as a fun thing to do. Apparently we don't have Freudian themes going on through our childhood. That's correct. Yeah, so they were doing that, yes. And then, of course, his sister. Oh, yes. Linda. Yeah. An interesting interesting creature Un- herself. Unusual relationship between the brother and sister. Now, I don't have the most stable brother-sister relationship, so I'm not necessarily one to talk, but mm-hmm. I think they could probably take a few lessons from me and Carrie and Whitney, probably. <laughs> yeah, the sister definitely has some infantile behavior around Oscar. Part of it may be because he's pushing things like ecstasy on her, so that could be part of it, yeah. but there's also the scene when they see each other uh, they were separated for a while. They went to different foster homes, apparently, uh, as the movie tells us, after their parents died. And he flies her into Tokyo after making a buku dollars uh, with his little drug deal business. Fat bank. Fat bank. Flies her into Tokyo on his bill, and uh, she proceeds to give him a kiss and then another kiss. Yeah. And then she starts to sort of nuzzle his ear yeah. and suck on the lobe a little bit <laughs> and yeah start to wonder what is going on there is that really happening or is that some strange desire he has because his sister is pretty attractive yeah I mean, again that's the uh unreliable narrator thing going on is this really happening uh, it seems like it's really happening and uh, yeah, I you mean, just, you yeah. keep watching, you think like, okay, cut to the next scene, cut to the next scene. Yeah. Why is she still just, you know, nibbling on his ear now? What is that all about? And she, like you said, she's a pretty cute girl, and you know, you like seeing cute girls doing cute things, but we've already kind of bought into Oscar as, you know, our our, our narrator or our, you know, the person that we're following through the film, so it's, yeah. it's too... Our vessel. We're too tied into Oscar at this point to really appreciate what's going on here in any way other than being creeped out. And, you know, I was pulling down all my Freud books off the wall and wondering, you know, where the picture of Oscar and Linda were. And it was page 452, as it turns out. So, right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, while she's in the airport, I don't know if you caught this or not, but, uh, I was helped by the fact that I put on subtitles while I was watching this because I didn't have it cranked up at the highest volume. When she comes into the airport, 
the piece of music that's that's being played on the film is Air on the G string by Bach. <laughs> a little a little comic foreshadowing by no way possibly. Tom, that's why I need you around to give me these little interesting tidbits, you know. <laughs> You're worth your that's weight in gold, the brother. Bills. Thank you, sir. Yeah, Thank you, sir. That's good stuff. So it does hint into her eventual career as a stripper. Ah, yes. I hear it's a slippery Which, slope, Tom. I know it is. A, <laughs> I've been approached a few times, and thus far I've been able to save myself from its evil grasp. But uh, one of these oh. days they're going to get me, and my yeah. my IT computer programming career is going to be by the wayside. Yeah, when your sister flies you to China, or uh, sorry, to Japan, yeah. China. What am I saying? I I think I'd go over big over there. I'm. Uh, I think so. I'm clean. I'm relatively hairless. Yeah. And uh, milky white. I mean, milky they, they white. Go for that, exactly. Right? So yeah, she is a stripper, and I don't want to get away from this topic. No, just yet yeah, there's, there's there's one more thing we should talk about. We haven't even hit the main the, vein of this mine yet, I'd say. Yeah, I think Matt' first favorite scene is. Uh, oh. Oh. And again, you you yeah. feel the sense of of a building, just like with the family out on on the the Sunday at drive, as Oscar's going around the apartment, you know, with sister gone, the sense of. What's what's about to happen here, Tom? What, what what's yeah. about to happen there? You know, I don't want to say. I, I think we have uh, we do have some new technology here at Jackass Critics. Nice. Our budget has expanded we, since the last one. That's correct. Yeah. And we were able to tape Matt's thoughts or record Matt's what? thoughts. I still say tape like a child from the eighties, but <laughs> we recorded Matt's thoughts, and we have a snippet during the scene that is about to come up that we're discussing. Yeah. Uh, Matt, can you tell us before we we enter this scene what voice you are thinking in this time? Uh, well, usually when I, I'm not sure if I should be comfortable or uncomfortable, like happy or, or displeased with what's happening, I break into Chris Farley voice in my brain. So oh, God. that's just kind of how I usually roll. But you're pushing my buttons here. Sometimes it's Fran Drescher too. I mean, it's, it goes <laughs> one way or the other. So because that the nanny had a real important part in my growing up relationship, and the nanny is kind of fitting for some of our themes in this movie. So, you know, Farley, Fardog, as we like to call him, or Drescher, you know. Okay, it may be Fran Drescher, maybe Chris Farley. Okay, yeah. well, uh, without further ado... Yeah, let's hear, let's, let's let's hear what happens, you know. Matt's thoughts, and, uh, and hear how the whole scene went down. Fascinating. Okay, there's Oscar. He walks into his dirty apartment. He's looking around. What's he doing? He picks up what looks like a napkin. Oh my god, what's that? It's gold. I think it's his sister's G-string. Why does he keep looking at it? Oh. Put it down, Oscar. Put it. Yeah. Oh my god, he's sniffing yeah. it. Yeah. And there it is, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, yeah. That's thoughts. No. Oscar sniffs his sister's G-string. I'm kind of bummed Fran sold me down the river there with actually what was happening, but that is exactly what, what happened, so yeah. I will... You uh, know, Matt, I don't think I don't think you were thinking in Fran Drescher just then, but it was uh, definitely something. Yeah. Yeah, well. <laughs> oh, man. Sniffs the sister's G-string. Uh, yes. I mean, I, I'm sure everyone's done some depraved things when the, when the lights are out and the, the shades are closed, but uh, that's more depraved than most. Yeah. Well, Gaspar Noe has been described, and the word provoke, I think, was written down a number of times in my notes, yeah. because there are many scenes in this movie that are just thrown in there to provoke the audience in a number of ways. Scenes of sex and drugs, yeah. 
Uh, there's an abortion scene, which I don't think we want to touch on too much, yeah. but I guess we could. But anyway, just to give you some background on Gaspar Noé. Yes, yes. Uh, so from his, uh, from a biography that I got from a website at the European Graduate School, some critics have described his films as experiments which test the audience's ability to face the darker side of the human condition, which Gaspar Noé believes is the truth masked behind a hypocritical facade of normality. So, most people, as yeah. as us, see him as being a button pusher. Yeah, yeah. In 1991, he had a short film called Carne, which shows the slaughter of a horse and the full birth... Wait, what did I just say there? Slaughter of a horse, yes. The slaughter of a horse, and yes, I guess yes. there's a, a point when his uh, daughter, who is retarded, is being molested, which essentially puts the butcher over the edge. That that could push somebody's buttons quite a bit, yeah. Yeah. No molesting. I guess it also shows, yeah, the full birth of his uh, daughter is what I meant to say before I butchered that part. All right. <laughs> I mean, uh, usually birth scenes are something you're forced to watch in seventh grade, you know, so that you don't do anything, you know, too silly. And yeah, uh, it can be used as a tool to cause reactions and to make people react. And that's why I haven't kissed a girl yet, and I'm 32. So that's correct. Yeah, it's for no other reason, I might add. Correct. Nope. Ninth. 1998, I Stand Alone. Uh, the same butcher from Carne. Uh, this film's been compared oftentimes to Taxi Driver as the butcher falls into despair after he gets out of prison and leaves his mistress and walks around with a loaded gun that has four bullets in it. Wow. Is the last so, one for himself? That would be... Oh, yeah. You know. <laughs> I, probably. Yeah. As uh, a Grim Ringler at jackasscritics.com The one writes, and only Grim Ringler. The yeah. one and only Grim Ringler. Author... Writer, Grim Wrangler. Provocateur, some would say. Yeah, yeah. and I should I should note before I say this, a horror aficionado. Dude loves his horror movies. Yes, as he writes, I had to shut the film off from time to time just to get a breather as it plays like an emotional snuff film, watching this monster tear his way through the world. That's a, a strong statement. Let me just say, after reading that, I probably don't want to see I Stand Alone. I'm sorry, Gaspar. <laughs> yeah, and that's kind of a similar uh, idea I have for his uh, probably most famous film, his most popular film in terms of just mainstream acceptance. Right. The uh, Irreversible. Irreversible, uh, 2002. Uh, someone described one of the scenes, I think it might be the opening scene in the movie, as a seemingly never-ending rape. Ugh. I'll leave it at that. Yeah, I mean... I'm willing to watch art and be challenged and stuff, but, I mean, I understand horrible things happen in the world, and I can't always feel like I'm participating in it, which I think is the feeling I would get in, from that flick. Right, right. And, you know, as I was watching the film, on one hand, you marvel at its technical brilliance and the places that Gaspar Noé takes you. Yeah. And the thoughts that he goes through, not the thoughts that he goes through, but you can see he put a lot of thinking into this film, and he has a great eye uh, for creating a film that is just a full feast. But on the other hand, you're constantly dealt with this dark side that makes it very hard to find the film as entertainment. I know sometimes we watch films that aren't always entertaining, right. and we watch them for for thought and for fulfillment, but this film goes to so many dark places. We mentioned an abortion. Uh, uh, we haven't even really talked about how much sex there is in the film and how much dirty sex there is. <laughs> we go to the strip club. Yeah. We see a scene that's practically uncut of what looks like actual sex going on between the guy who runs the strip club and his sister Linda, yeah. which is, you know, the scene that essentially leads to her, 
abortion because she has unprotected sex with this guy. Right. Uh, and then, of course, there's, was it Hotel Love? Love Hotel, Hotel Love. We take a trip into Hotel Love. The uh... Yeah, we haven't even touched on that yet. There's some <clears throat> crazy stuff going on in there. Where uh, where Linda goes to uh, have a nice little time with uh, her buddy Alex. Did I see the one and only Victor also giving fellatio to men or something going on in there? That, uh, that could be. That could be. I think Victor was dealing yeah. with a lot of things at the time. Once again, so we, we kind of bust into that uh, the flighty spirit bird mode <clears throat> where we're traveling throughout the Hotel Love, which was pretty cool and well done. And, you know, similar to the... Uh, the uh, shaky effect of of things being interesting there's lots of uh, that going on here in our trip into hotel love as well but yeah lots of cool stuff right. there right and then obviously during hotel love we see the love scene between victor and linda yeah and that leads into and of course the spirit is the one showing us this so this is our good buddy oscar yep, yep. watching his sister and his uh Best friend have a little bit of buddy buddy time. Alex and and Linda, right? Oh, thank yeah, you, no Alex problem. and Linda. Yeah. And um, eventually, the he, he dives into a deeper place. <laughs> we take the first person people, really literally here. Very literally, yeah. and I know the people who saw this in the theater were probably a little bit surprised to see a large penis head throbbing through a, a vaginal cave. Yeah. And uh, you can kind of make up your. Your mind of what happens after it that. It would be an amazing use of the 3D technology, though I am glad oh they my. resisted that, that temptation. Somebody get, well that, somebody get the 3D camera on Gaspar Noe's hand! <laughs> no! Of course, hitting back to the Tibetan Book of the Dead, there is a what appears to be a reincarnation, or at least what I thought was a reincarnation at the end. Yeah, yeah, I mean, we're kind of at the point of wrapping things up here, and, uh, you know, I wasn't sure if I should take it as literally as the Tibetan Book of the Dead, and... Interesting you say that, go on. Yeah, and view this as actually, you know, as as Alex kind of lays out uh, of, you know, his spirit traveling around, and, and then trying you mean to... Well, Alex and Oscar, you know, they're debating back and forth of, about what it means, and uh, Oscar uh, probably isn't the... has the highest reading comprehension from the sounds of it, probably due to his inebriated state often, so he's kind of quizzing Alex mm-hmm. about what it really means, and Alex gives his interpretations earlier on. Yeah. So I'm not sure if I really uh, believe that this is the the, the travel of the, of the spirit and all that stuff, and it, it's attempt to be reborn, or if this is just kind of the last, you know, synapses firing off in, in Oscar's head as he's laying on the crappy, poor bathroom floor of a of a house after being shot by a you know the police department there for Tokyo so wow it's interesting that you say yes. that because when i watched this film uh once we got to the birth scene yeah i thought that he was being reincarnated as his sister's son yeah. or fetus or what not fetus but his sister's baby yeah. that was just being born and he certainly would not mind getting up on those boobies from what i can tell yeah, obviously that's kind of where he was focused. That's why he was flying towards there as, well, not as quickly as possible, but he took his time to get to the boobies, but yes. Yeah, of course, yeah. of course. Uh, the film definitely hints at that early yeah. on. But it, it was interesting what I read from Gaspar Noe uh, in a couple interviews is that he says that, you know, uh, when the baby is born, uh, the woman who gave birth is out of focus. Yeah. And it actually is not Linda. It is Oscar's mom. Oh, okay. 
And that completely threw me for a loop. I thought they were playing up the whole reincarnation bit as the Tibetan Book of the right. Dead would. Yeah. And I thought you were going to buy into that, too. And I was getting ready to pull this out on you yeah. and say, well, look at that. Pull the rug but out from our like, Tom. What a jerk. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. But it looks like you're already pretty hot onto that. <laughs> Well, so is he thinking this is kind of a cycle of life thing where he's kind of reverting back in a Benjamin Button style to, you know, where he came from without Brad Pitt? Again, David Fincher reference. Yeah. Oh, we are such shills. Um, no, what what he was saying was uh, he had a couple different things that he was saying. Please. So there's multiple ways to read it if you look at it that way. One is that it could be some loop that his mind is caught in. It could be that... Well, computer programming likes the uh, infinite loop idea. That, that tickles a fancy. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. That's that's a pretty interesting one, right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's the whole infinite loop of, you know, being reborn. And uh, there's also the idea that, you know, he's taking this hit of DMT at the beginning of the film. Yeah. It takes five minutes in real time, but it seems like it takes hours in, you know, altered state. Time, yeah, if you right. Will. Sure. So this could be... When it says the void at the end after the baby's born, maybe this is when his acid trip ends. Maybe he was never shot. Oh, okay. But it could also be that, like you were saying, it could be the last moments that he was thinking of, the things that he wanted to come back to were going back to his mother and being born and and going back to her bosom and hearing her heartbeat. Right. And and all this. It's just the next logical step after that, really, at that point. Right. Right. And, you know, I think you can accept it on face value if you want with the Tibetan Book of the Dead, and I don't think that lessens the impact whatsoever. And if you want to, obviously, No Way himself is hinting that that probably isn't the case, though. I mean, is that the ultimate uh, red herring there at the beginning? Uh, That sets up the next two hours of the movie, basically, that seem to follow exactly along the path that that they describe? (laughs) Oh, completely, because I was caught hook, line, and sinker when they brought up the Tibetan Book of the Dead, and oh, guess what? He dies, and his spirit seems to lift up and depart. Right. And then, of course, the other thing that Noe references, too, is that DMT is this chemical that uh, many people think goes off in your brain when you die or when you're getting ready to die. It could be a chemical that's used for uh, uh, when you sleep or something that disperses in your brain when you sleep and helps you imagine these dreams. So, uh, you know, he talks about this as being, like, the last trip that he has Yeah. before he really does go off to La La Land. Could be maybe not the DMT he took earlier, but what goes off in his brain as he knows he's about to die, what gets released. And it seems like this whole Tibetan Book of the Dead thing, because he was just having that conversation with with Alex. Well, that would lend some credence to my not really trusting some of his memories and stuff if this is uh, going off while, you know, the... The uh, chemicals are being released, so obviously it's kind of uh, affecting some of his memories and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. I mean, there's nothing. Maybe blatant. he never sniffed the g-string, you know. <laughs> there's nothing blatant like people to. walking on the ceilings or you know stuff that obviously reality is completely displaced from. So I mean, they, he didn't do anything to really give you reason to question. It's just some of the you know, oddities and the way it's filmed, I guess, gives you the the subtle. Maybe this isn't right. I'm not really sure. Yeah, maybe his sister wasn't, you know, sucking on his ear for five minutes in the Tokyo airport. Right? Just blame it on the drugs. That's what I. It's gotten me out of many situations. Yeah, yeah. And even that little jump cut I was talking about too, right? It could be a, a misplaced memory yeah. of 
where they were standing at the time they had this conversation. And it goes back and forth in his in his mind. We were here, no, we were there. I wish he did the, more of that. The sound then. was actually seamless through that. Yeah, I wish he did more of that then. I mean, that would have... It was... Even though I didn't remember top of mind, uh, it did add a little uh, texture there and do that more. But Right. If the movie weren't so damn disturbing and so damn long, I'd probably watch it again to see some more of that. Yeah, but... <laughs> that's true. <laughs> okay, so I think that wraps up the main discussion yeah. that we have. So yeah. we'll get on to a couple of the goofy questions, All Matt. Right. Yeah. This is going to be a tough one. Shoot it. Shoot it to me. Yeah. I'm giving you the, the laser here, the fastball. Who would you party with in this movie? You know, I... I had one character that really stuck with me, and uh, even after the fact, uh, I really dug this gentleman. That was my yes. boy Alex. Um, I thought he was a really cool guy, and, and uh, honestly, earlier on in the movie, Linda really has her hate on for him, and I'm kind of curious what you thought about that. She's really talking trash about him being <laughs> such a horrible drug dealer, when in fact her brother is kind of the scumbag as far as that goes, so... Yeah, I think she's just upset that that he sort of got him set up with this other guy that he's uh, yeah getting stealing his, his attention uh, from her, getting his chichi from yeah. exactly. No, he's a he seemed like a really cool guy. I mean, you always have, like having the cool dude that's kind of cool. He'll go and get you some chicks, you know. Not very shy, kind of outgoing. A good compliment for you know the little more quieter guys. Uh, he's got cool books and stuff to talk about. You know, likes to read and everything. Can score you a little bit of a blow if you're in the mood for that. You know, I mean, holy cow! Once in a while, it's time for a party. You know, so Alex, my boy. How about how about you, Thomas? Yeah, you know, Alex seemed like a good pick. Alex is gonna be my pick. All right. So you're saying I, then... I made the safe pick? I see how it is. No, I'm not saying you made the safe pick, but I'm saying I changed my pick from Alex at a certain point in the movie when he first met Oscar. Yeah. And they were talking about ways to earn money, and he said, I think it's easier to go rob a bank than it is to deal drugs. And he was very serious about yeah. saying, let's go rob a bank. Yeah. I'm not sure I want to party with Alex if he's, <laughs> you know, just going to start pulling out a gun around Tokyo. And So you think you drink like three or four schlitzes, and next thing you know, you got a, a pantyhose on your face, and you're at like Tokyo <laughs> National? I got a panty on my head, yeah. <laughs> How did I get here? Curse you, Alex! Yeah, you know, and the last person I want to party with is Victor, because, yeah. I mean, what, you know, I'm not going to give him my last beer, and he's ratting me out to the cops. Not What's a cool that all guy. about? Yeah. All of a sudden, I'm eating a bullet in my belly. <laughs> Victor, no, no, he's the last person I invite to the he, party. I want nothing to do with He does Victor. have the MILF, though. I mean, that's a plus one for him, but... <sighs> yeah, there's that. Yeah. Um, Victor's mom has got it going <laughs> on. <laughs> Anyways, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was good. Yeah. Um, I'm going to cheat on this one. Okay. The, the the person that I would party with the most is uh, a character that doesn't have a talking part that I can at least remember, but he is seen in the strip club, and that is actually Gaspar Noe. He has what? a small cameo appearance, and in reading the interviews and just seeing this film, I just love to party with that guy. He's wow. got like so many goofy stories. He's just so way out there. Well, I, th and, I threw Larry uh, Summers at you last uh, podcast, so I guess it's only fair that sure. you throw uh, Gaspar Noe himself in at me. So That's right. So, That's is right. this like a Hitchcockian tradition? Do we know? Or is this uh, just specific no, to... I, I don't know if he, uh, if he did it on any previous films, but uh, he definitely put himself out there for this film yeah. for whatever reason. Maybe he has some Freudian reason for doing it. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, he's uh, he's the son of an artist, so he has this whole artist mentality. He's got all these crazy theories. He talked about going into the Amazon to get this DMT that he could drink. He's from Argentina originally, lived in France. I mean, I, I bet the guy can go on. I, I've read these interviews with him. 
someone will ask him a question and he'll ramble on for like two or three paragraphs, yeah. not even answering the question. He'll come back. What was the question again? Oh, you know, just be entertaining to listen to that guy because it's just nonstop talk and interesting things going on. And what's the idea for your next film? You just did enter the void. It's like Stanley Kubrick doing 2001. Yeah. What are you thinking of next? Oh. But you don't want to send Gaspar Noe to go get the pizza because he probably will show up like four hours later and have lost his shirt and not have the pizza. So, I mean, that's an important <laughs> factor. I, I could trust Alex to bring pizza. Hey, can you? I don't know, man. Alex was hunting for, you know, dead rats in the garbage can to eat at one point in the movie. Desperate I don't want to bring back desperate pizza. Measures. I mean, if somebody threw a, a Jackson his way, he probably would have had some sushi. But, you know, he's kind of living down that's a little true. bit. So That's true. Yeah. I, I do almost think that Alex may have been the the Gaspar Noé projection. Maybe that part was written as a Gaspar Noé-esque character. Right. Huh? Yeah, I can see so that. We might be parting with the same guy whether we know it or there not. There we go. Here's a funny question. Yes, is this movie better with booze? <laughs> <laughs> it is a good question. I mean, I, am I correct in saying that he has openly proclaimed this movie as being something he he crafted with the idea of people being influenced and watching it? Or did uh, I make that up? No, I, I think I've heard that before. Yeah, he I, fully expects people to watch this in some altered state. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad I watched it, uh, you know, sober uh, when I, initially. And and I, I could uh, have a few beers and probably uh, enjoy the experience. I'm just afraid for some of the longer passages... I may find myself a bit drowsy. Not that it's not interesting and stuff, but, uh, you know, after four beers, I'm like a little baby with a bottle sometimes. Yeah, you just suck on that nipple and oh, off in La La Land. Linda's nipple. Yeah, she ain't my Linda's sister. <laughs> <laughs> She's somebody's sister. Everybody's somebody's sister. I mean, come yeah, on. That's correct. Yeah. That's correct. Yeah, so I would say no. I think this movie is an altered state. Yeah. I mean... The guy created a DMT trip for five minutes. It's supposed to emulate what a lot of people who are on that crap say you see. <laughs> Why do you need to take that a step further? I mean, I think what he's giving you right now is, uh, you know, you put the speakers on full blast, yeah. you get the surround sound, you turn down the lights, you put yourself in this for three hours and you come out of it. This is a movie that affects you afterwards. That's one sure. thing I want to say. Yeah. This is a movie that... When you come out of it, it's it's not like one of those movies you put down and no. you know you go to sleep and yeah. you're like, oh, I just saw you know League of Our Own, honey, good night. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, it's a film that yeah, it was uh, sticks with you. I was like an hour and a half in, and it was getting pretty late, but uh, on on a school night. But I mean, at that point, I was committed, which I don't I don't say about many movies. Most movies, you know, I feel comfortable hitting the pause button and you know tackling another day, but. Uh, yeah. I, I w definitely wanted to finish, and I think that's going to be the case even if you don't like the movie. I think you're going to feel compelled to continue. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I watched it in three parts. I had to keep coming back to it because I just didn't have the time yep. to uh, to plow through it all at once. It's a pretty big commitment. Indeed. And uh, I will admit that I did watch the end in a late night, and then I went to bed right after that. And, of course, the last image in my head was this big, huge penis head, which was just, you know. A typical Friday night for you, yeah. Of course, right. So, yeah, to answer the question, no, you don't need any booze to enhance this one. I hear you. It's, it's perfectly fine on its own. Yeah. And this is a uh, a question that is fine-tailored for this movie. Yeah. Who would you like to be your affectionate sister? Oh, Tom. 
Well, as De La Huerta is the affectionate sister in this movie. I mean, Linda is a pretty nice affectionate sister. I mean, you've already kind of tried the goods out if you've if you've watched this one, so it's kind of. Uh, yeah. I, it almost feels like a Gaspar Noe pick, though, for the party, so I don't want to say that. I'm going to go yeah, with um, Fran, be Fran Drescher, probably. Cause Fran Drescher, yeah, because her voice sounds so sexy when I do she it. She would do my laundry. Um, <laughs> she, she she gussies up well, I mean, from my experience. Um, I think she's still got it hold together. and probably, She's probably in her 50s now, so I imagine she's probably still in good shape. Um, and you got the royalties, everything. I mean, it all comes together, you know. Wow, yeah. the dress. You were just, you just, you stunned me every time. That <laughs> this is the Larry Summers of this podcast, you know, just the yeah. take your breath away. Yeah, I was gonna go with um, Fran Drescher. No, I wasn't gonna go with Fran oh. Drescher. I was gonna go with Angelina Jolie, but Ooh, yeah. you know, then I, I, I started watching that scene where the ear is getting sucked, and I thought, man, with those lips, she'd probably just clean my ear right <laughs> That's up. That's right. You know. Yeah, she just you know so you, need, you do would, actually need some earwax left. I understand it's actually a protective measure. So you, if it all gets hoovered out, it's going to be bad for you. Yeah, yeah, I'm thinking maybe she's not right. And you know, in that last movie she was in, uh, the tourist, she kind of looked like Skeletor, but with bangs. She's starting to get a little scary. And I mean, I am a fat slob, so don't get me wrong, but she's starting to scare yeah. me a little bit. Yeah, a lot. Yeah, a lot. I, I think that whole skinny thing is starting to uh, stay its course. She's it's entering the, the Madonna zone of of. Skeleton, creepy, beat you up, yeah, scary stuff. Not not that the vials of blood around the neck were all that not scary to begin with, but yeah. All right, so, so uh, Dresher's out, Jolie's out. Uh huh. <laughs> Maybe Jessica Alba. That was the only oh, one I could think of. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no problem with the lips. No problem with the ear nuzzle. Yeah, you know? I think I think Matt first would be all over that one as well. Right? The Fran Drescher voice is going on in my <laughs> mind right now about the g-string. So, <laughs> wonder what that smells like, Maddie. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay, and finally, uh, just summary of our feelings of the movie. I think I uh, I talked about mine a little bit. It's it's a it's a movie that sticks with you. Yeah. It's it's one of those movies that, you know, you're thinking about a couple days later, just certain scenes just revolve in your head. And it's, you know, not something that leaves you easily, just technically amazing, amazing piece of work. Yeah. It just thematically, it's very difficult to get through. Um, it is. It's it's a big bite of the apple, you know, and... Yeah. And... You have to go into it with a very strong stomach, and you have to know that you're going to see a few disturbing things. There are some but... disturbing things. It's dark. It's not. Uh, it's not paced so that there's a, a, a bullet point every ten minutes. Um, so it's kind of non-traditional in a Hollywood world, I guess. But um, and I feel like a, a, a sellout for kind of hitting the same point as I did last time for Social Network of, you know, the craft of the movie is is important and it's worth viewing for the craft itself. But um, at the end, my the one overriding theme that I had or summary of my feelings of it was I feel like he achieved his vision better than possibly any movie I have ever seen. I just, and I don't know if this is even the case, and I know you've read a lot more of his interviews and stuff and how he feels about what he achieved, but uh, when I was finished watching it, I thought his transition from his mind to the paper you know, to the to film and then to my, you know, TV set in the middle of Michigan, you know, in, in April, I think 
he probably got, you know, the transference of what he had in his mind into my mind about as perfect as you could possibly hope to achieve. And that's a pretty amazing. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. I, I couldn't, I couldn't put it better. I know when I read about when he released the film in Cannes yeah. in 2009. So this movie just came out in DVD in the United States in January of 2011. So very recent this podcast and it's going to be released in the UK Next week, 426. Okay, cool. We're actually coming just in time for that. But when it came out in Cannes, you think about that, it's two years before it came out on DVD. Yeah. And when it was released limited in America, I think it wasn't until either the summer of 2010 or fall. And when he talked about Cannes, he said that when people came up to him and said, you know, I, I'm sorry I missed your film at Cannes, and he would say, oh, I'm glad you did because it wasn't the finished product. He actually rushed it Yeah. in 2009. He wanted to get more artwork done. I don't even think he had the opening. Oh. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I don't think he had it fully intact as he he intended to. That just you know nail you over the head with that full on blitz. Uh, so there was a lot of stuff that he was working on in post production after he released it the first time. Right. And I think he you know he just sort of had time on his side to uh, to work at this thing and perfect it and it seemed like he had a pretty good budget to work on it too if he had all this art direction he was working Damn. with and guys like Pierre Buffin who or did I say it right Pierre Buffin yeah who are just masters at getting that visual effect down and uh, as you've seen in Fight Club and Batman Begins and The Cell I mean just very good at at taking whatever's in that director's mind and putting it on the film so I, yeah I have to agree with you just executed his vision so you have to give him yeah, the hats off to that. Yeah, I mean, if you have an opportunity to to experience a boat that a master boat builder, you know, crafted by hand, you know, I would recommend you, even if you don't like boats, to to go tr- try it out. And um, you know, if you have the chance to, you know, experience a fine meal from a, an amazing, you know, uh, chef, even if it's mm-hmm. something that isn't exactly something that you're interested in, you know, it's something worth experiencing. An artisan at the top of their craft, creating something. You know, whether or not it's it's to your tastes or not, I, I think it's something worth experiencing. And I, honestly, I thought this movie was an experience and something worth doing. Oh, completely. You know? yeah, completely. That's what he wanted, an internal experience or an inner experience, yeah. as he put in one interview. So. so I can understand it's not fit for everybody, but it, it is worth, worth trying and sticking it out, I think. Okay. Well, I think that about wraps up our podcast. I'd like to uh, thank you, Matt, for joining me on this You're podcast. Most welcome, as Thomas. Thanks for kind of driving and uh, you know drawing My out pleasure. some of the best in me and Fran Drescher. I want to thank everyone for for listening to the Jackass Critics Film Podcast, and we hope you listen to us again shortly. We'll be back soon. Bye bye. See you.
Jackass.